0: Welcome to Writers Talking, the podcast where we take writers and readers behind the scenes, sharing the stories within the stories. No scripts, no filters, and no holds barred as we talk about what really happens for writers as they write, edit, publish, and promote their work. Hi, I'm Anjanette Fennell, agent, editor, and writerly mentor who's worked with hundreds of writers to break through their creative challenges to uncover the stories they feel compelled to share. Now, let's get talking. I wanted to pop in quickly to say a heartfelt thank you to all of our listeners of our new podcast. We deeply appreciate the listens, shares, and especially the five-star reviews and the kind words that you're leaving that let others know about Writers Talking. We'll have two more episodes to finish up this season and start again fresh in 2023. If you have any recommendations, suggestions, we'd love to hear them. So you can reach out on Instagram Via private message at writers underscore talking underscore podcast or email me, Anjanette at storyaslife.com. And now let's get into this episode. Katie Sice is a nationally bestselling novelist of six novels The Break, Open House, We Were Mothers, The Boyfriend App, The Pretty App, and The Academy. Her books have been included in best of lists by Good Morning America, The New York Post, E Online, Pure Wow, Pop Sugar and Parade Magazine. She lives with her family outside New York City. What I would love to dive into today is a little bit about your process. You could talk about where you started because we will have discussed in the bio a little bit about you've got multiple books. You've just written your sixth novel, which by the way, loved it, was oh, I'm so glad. really blown awesome. away. Awesome. because Thank you so much. For anyone who reads thrillers and and mysteries and really likes it, so like you know, old school, even Agatha Christie, you had that sense in it. You sort of wove in a little bit of what people might think of as like a Paula Hawkins, this mm-hmm. unreliable narrator. Sure sort of component, but I would love for you to share a little bit, even just about the break. How did you write that without necessarily doing spoilers for people who haven't read it? Because by the way, everyone listening, if you haven't, go order this. It doesn't matter where you are in the world. Amazon will get that to you. I think I got it in two days here in Australia, which was amazing, but it's it's a really great example of keeping the reader on their toes, yet not being able to rely on what they think at any given moment. How did that, how did you do it? (laughs) Even practically speaking, did you sit down with a plan and like, this is how I'm going to write it and then throw it out the window? What did that look like?
1: So I don't really, I I don't like to outline, which I know some writers absolutely love it and it works so well for them. For me, I like to sit down and it's almost like I'm watching a movie and Mm. I like, to let it unfold. And I guess I feel like if I'm surprised, then hopefully, probably, maybe the reader will be. And so I like to just not know going in, and I sort of will put the characters in a room and I'll have a general sense of where they should go next, like maybe a location change, or maybe it should be these certain players all in one room together. But I sort of let them – I let the scene sort of take over. And, you know, whether that's instinct or whether that's like a lot of years of scene study, I used to be an actor. Mm. So I love reading scenes and I love reading scripts and I like to sort of imagine them the way they would play out like in a movie or on stage. And so maybe some of it – someone suggested to me in a podcast interview recently that maybe some of that is just – sort of almost like being the scene partner on both sides in the scene and being really open to what happens. Yeah, yeah, and I love, I mean, I'm glad that you felt a sense of sort of tension and suspense, because I think that that's the most one of the reasons I love suspense novels is just when you have that feeling of just being really unsettled, and you're almost like looking for the release of what happens and what is going on here. And so, when you can deliver that, I think your audience will feel will feel satisfied. And so, I would I'd say that mostly most days I wrote it during the pandemic, okay. And I really enjoyed that escape of New York City. I, I wasn't going into the city <laughs> that much. I live about an hour north, so I really wasn't going in at all in the pandemic, and I missed that. And mm. so, I loved setting my main characters in you know in New York. I loved the book taking place in New York. And I would say that usually for me, I'll try to sit down and I really only write for about two hours a day. Yeah. When I was younger and I was ghostwriting and I was really working to get novels published, I probably wrote more along the lines of six hours a day, but then I had children. and If you I didn't, didn't catch yeah, that,
0: um, yeah, you just the can't bio, she's yeah. got a few kids
1: now. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> And so I would say, you know, writing is such a muscle. And so if you don't work it, you know, right now, I even took a few weeks off and that's even, I find myself like, okay, now I've got to get back in. I try to write about a thousand words a day and that, you know, certainly doesn't always happen, but that's what I go for. And I find that if I'm just in the habit of writing every day, it's like anything else. Like if you go to the gym and, you know, every day you'll just keep going. And yeah. so... That's what I try to do. So nowadays it's a two hour a day work. And I would say, you know, as I was younger and trying to really figure it all out and practicing it, I I do believe when people talk about like that 10,000 hour rule, Mm -hmm. if you can just really work at something so much, you know, and then hopefully it keeps getting better and better. And so hopefully, you know, I really spent a lot of time writing when I was younger. And then now I have it a little more streamlined and narrowed down that I can do a, a little bit less per day. But then maybe when the kids are all in school, you know, I would try to rev that back up a little bit.
0: Interesting. Do you think, and so I totally buy in, by the way, to you are learning, and absolutely, I'm a big believer in people coming from either writing screenplays or being in performative arts, that it becomes part of it. Actually, I believe everybody inherently understands story, the parts sure. of story is a very Joseph Campbell y sort of thing, but that and I'm very visual. So I'm biased towards your idea about watching it unfold and giving you the payoff while you're writing it. Number one of watching it. Do you find that you have, this is really tricky too, because everybody needs editing. I'm just going to keep saying it (laughs) to everyone who listens, everyone edits. Do you find yourself having to rework more or or rather less now than you did before because you've got such an intuitive sort of process with it? I would say that there's probably a little less reworking, yeah. Mm. Yeah, I would say across the
1: board, there's probably less, you know, less that has to be totally torn apart or lost or taken out because I think that there's, If it's all kind of like putting together a puzzle each time, you get a little bit better, I think, at trying to figure out, okay, well, I'm going to talk about this on page 80 because I need it to be satisfying enough and I need them to have seen the person on the page enough for that payoff to work, you know, way down, five, six of the way through the manuscript. And so I think that sort of, the more you practice that, the less you'll be rewriting. Yeah. I, I found that to be true for sure.
0: It's interesting too. So can you talk a little bit about where, because it's a little intuitive and you're not super plotting, it feels like you're only half pantsing it because some of it is actually working out in your brain. It's maybe just not written down as notes or like in Scrivener or something. Where does the idea come from? And then do you recognize while you're writing and in that place of, I love the relevatory magic that writers can get as they Let the story unfold, but do you notice your story theme before you get there, or do you let yourself do you recognize it when you get to the end, or do people ask you about it and you're like, oh my god, did I was that what I was writing? I mean, how does all I would say that I
1: often will write toward a twist, so even if I. Hmm. I may not know, you know, what's going to happen and who will have done it, but I will. I I almost can't start anything until I know a, at least one twist that I really hope will surprise readers, because I think when you're, you know, the the ante has really been upped. I think in psychological thrillers, yeah. you know, ever since like Gone Girl, yeah. And so I I I just feel like you have to surprise your readers. Like they're looking for it. They want to be surprised. And so I I definitely write toward a twist and I may not know who did it, but I'll have sort of a sense and feel of what the book will feel like overall. Like there'll be a general feeling and maybe some themes that I even want to hit like this book. You know, in the break, I really wanted to set a thriller sort of against this backdrop of postpartum mental health. And I just felt like what what a, you know, a really important and you know momentous time in someone's life and i think and many of my readers have i've have many of course readers who haven't had children but um many who have and they have written me saying that they felt like very seen sort of during that time and that was important to me to write about sort of the, the how hard that time can be and then i thought well what if you had to put your mind together and get to the bottom of this sort of awful mystery during that time it just felt like it would make for a challenge to write and and sometimes if something seems hard to do that that's almost the right thing to write i think
0: Oh, I like that. That's really interesting. So I did like the sixth sense and go back and read I just skip around to see if I could find the clues. Mm-hmm. Because of course, I, um, for anyone who doesn't know, I learned about your book through Zibby's book club and read it. And I'm so thankful for that. And I got to hear you talk a little bit about it during the book club meeting. So I know that there was maybe, and again, without any spoilers, a change at the end mm-hmm. that maybe you didn't see coming, which I thought, oh my God, how beautiful that you as the writer got to have that experience, even in the writing of it, like by the last chapters, not knowing, and then like throwing in the- So this isn't just one twist, like, you know, going in kind of a main twist maybe, mm-hmm. but the, the number of twists and turns sort of astounded me. It was really clever. And then going back and getting to do that for myself, like that little final scene montage of here are all the places where there were little seeds where it could have right. gone this way, sure. So you, which was part of what led to that feeling of maybe this is an anxiety. So it's really interesting that you wrote it during COVID too, because COVID is something separate. But what I felt all throughout was a general level, not just on the part of the main character who is going through. Sure at least part of that postpartum anxiety, depression, but an overall sense of anxiety. Definitely. I've not lived in New York, so it was very evocative and and I could see it. There were lots of those descriptions. And by the way, you can do metaphors and similes really beautifully, Mm -hmm. I noticed in there. So I really enjoyed those. But my favorite parts, because I'm a geek to this, on one page, you had Rowan, who is also a thriller suspense writer and by the way Rowan is the the main protagonist i would say the super central one she shared her process or rather the way that right. she plots out a book is that right, what you right. use yeah. I would say a lot of what she says
1: is certainly similar to how I feel and how I write and how I look at the world, which made this book really enjoyable to write. Like In a lot of ways, Rowan is the, by far the closest character to me that I've ever written. Mm-hmm. And even June, because people are always asking that with other novels. They're like, oh, are you like this character? And I'm, I'm sort of like, no, I don't think so. I'm not sure. I'm sure there are some similarities. But then this time around for the break, I felt like I'm so similar to Rowan. And then also June, I'm so similar to June at that age, like when I was yes. 22 and I kind of arrived to New York and I just every room felt like it held so much possibility. And, you know, I just was very wide eyed, kind of looking around like, what's going to happen here? Anything could happen and going on auditions and things like that. So, in this book, for sure, these two characters were the most absolutely the most like me than out of anything I've ever written, which made it a lot easier in some ways. I felt like, okay, well, when I was writing Rowan, sometimes I would feel like, well, what would I do? And I liked when she would talk. And I also enjoyed writing the scenes where Gabe her screenwriting husband, like you can see some of his admir, like what he admires about her storytelling. I thought, because yeah. my husband is not creative. And I think probably thank God for that. And so, because I don't think there would need to be two of us in here, but, but I thought I just thought it would be interesting to set her with a husband who is also a storyteller with a different medium and like what that would be like and and the competition. And you know in some ways it would be great and there'd be a lot of love and understanding there and respect, but then in some ways, and there's scenes in there, as you know, that you see a little bit of the competition between them.
0: Yeah. Well, I would say too, because just like we're often talking about on Writers Talking, shining a light on the fact that just like we're talking about today, not everybody has the same process. So imagining two people who are writing slightly differently, you know, he is a screenwriter, so it's going to affect the way that he approaches. But even if they wrote the exact same, they're both novel writers or suspense novel writers, they may show up and do things differently. And that can cause Friction, which by the way, for writers is brilliant. You want to give them conflict, even if it's the subtle conflict sometimes or bigger conflict. I mean, and again, all throughout, there was just this steady pace when you talked about wanting to give, what was it? Like that tension throughout, it just kept going. It started with it and then you get to a place where few spots <laughs> whereas a reader you could really catch your breath you could relax yeah you right? catch your breath a little Be- yeah but again mm-hmm. but to me that's also indicative of when you wrote it and i find it really fascinating because a lot of the books that are out now are ones that were written near COVID. the start yeah. of yeah. COVID when people Definitely. were locked in. So it was part, you can find some that are full escapist, right? Like remind me of a time where everything was great. And others are sort of feeding into it and trying to maybe make sense, make sense or have it. a place to like I've got or- the anxiety. Let me put it over here and look at it because we we share a little bit about this. How is this? writing the break, how is it similar or different to some of the other books? And again, starting having started with nonfiction, that was very much based on where you were at that time, which by the way, anybody go back and read that because that story... Do you have any jewelry still that you sell, by the way? Because, wow. So I don't, it's funny, you know what? It's so funny you ask that
1: because I just made today, I, I was writing a thank you card for somebody and I made a piece today. So it's so funny you say that. So I often will use it for um, like teacher gifts and friend gifts and I'm birthday so gifts because I have so many supplies. Um, <laughs> yes. And because I overbought. So, um, you know, and as I will tend to do if I see like, you know,
0: how can you resist? It's sort of juice like stationary. I'm like, I like twenty I, juice boxes. Okay. Yeah. <laughs>
1: <That's crazy. laughs> so so I'm working. I'm working on that. But so I will often go in there and and make stuff. But I don't sell it anymore. Not because I don't want to, but just because I feel like there's space for like this yeah. one thing and this one career. And I think if I tried to get all the way back into jewelry, and I, and I loved I loved being a jewelry designer, and it was it was so much fun, and it was a perfect job for my 20s because I had time to do that. I had time to write. And, and it sort of got me into that writing of that book, Creative Girl, that you're talking about, yeah. which was all about like how to have a creative career. Because at the time I was also working as a television host, which was really also a ton of fun. And I thought, oh, this would be fun to write a book about this, kind of like the circuitous nature of creative careers and how you don't always know where they're going to go and <laughs> kind of had to navigate some of that or hopefully teaching. Hopefully it was helpful for some people to read about that as they were kind of embarking on their own creative work. And then I did some ghostwriting writing. So I wrote three novels. So they were New York Times bestsellers, but they were under somebody else's name, which I actually loved because I could practice. It was like three novels, getting to practice, and getting paid to write is Wonderful when you're getting yes. paid. Because I had written a novel. I'd written after I wrote Creative Girl, the nonfiction book. I wrote a novel. It was like probably 350 pages. It was a paranormal romance, and it did not sell. And I was, you know, I was so devastated. I mean, I, within reason, I was devastated. I mean, you know, there are obviously way, way worse things, but I sort of, I was,
0: I was. Hey, you're you know. you're in a safe space. The so people <laughs> live in a safe space to be devastated. You. <laughs> right. Yes, feel free to be devastated yeah.
1: here. Yeah. Yes, totally. So I was devastated, and and I remember. I sort of thought, okay, well, I have to figure out how to do this because I love this and I love writing. I love writing creative girl. I love being in my pajamas. I loved how solitary it was because I think I'm sort of like an introverted. I think I'm like an extroverted introvert or something. I don't know. I love being out, but I also am such an introvert. So. I love. I sort of was like, okay, I have to figure out how to do this. And then I, so I did the, I did the, the three ghost written books and then wrote three books that my next three novels did sell. There was a woman, an amazing editor at HarperCollins who bought them. And so then they came out sort of through my thirties and then mid thirties, end of thirties, I was like, oh, I really want to try writing an adult novel and I want to try to do like suspense. And so I wrote a book called We Were Mothers and I sold that to Amazon Little A, which is Little A is the literary fiction in of Amazon publishing. Yeah. And I adore my editor. I also adore my agent. He's wonderful and very supportive. And we've sort of really enjoyed kind of these three books together. I mean, my agent is really – or my my editor is really smart and I really respect what she has to say about the books. Like she's always – right, frankly. Even if I don't agree with the change,
0: sometimes I'll sit on it. And then by the next day, I'm like, oh, she's totally right. you know. So do you think you've also handled that differently now? Again, through going through that many novels. And I think it's really interesting to getting that practice where you feel fully connected and yet you're not going to take total... <laughs> like, like, You're safely doing it by ghostwriting, which is not exactly true because you are putting in all the work. Sure, But what I guess what I mean is... Receiving feedback and how you take that, how you filter it through and decide, yes, I buy it. And generally, what I will tell writers is if you've got to the stage where you've are partnered with a publisher, you have to have this confidence that they know their have market. To. I mean, it's not, look, they're always outliers and they hit and miss, mm-hmm. but by and large, they're only going to recommend things based on what they know about the market and their experience. So even if you don't super know them, you think, well, they got hired, maybe trust it. But Mm -hmm. how do you process that internally? I thought it was interesting that you say you take a day, (laughs) like some pieces of feedback will be like, oh yeah, you know, I was a little bit worried about that. Great. That makes sense. And then you take it out right away. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And others are like,
1: And I rarely have a take a day one, by the way. I would say that happens to me like twice in a manuscript where I was like, oh, I really liked that sentence. I like that section. I wonder if I should ask if I can keep it. And then usually by the next day I'm like, oh, she was right. That section has to go. Interesting. And so, yeah, no, I think I, yeah, I, well, so I'm, I'm pretty collaborative. I think from years of theater also is, you know, someone tells you to say something differently or to do this or to do that. And they're in charge of, you know, they're sort of your director or somebody that you really want to – that you respect and you want to listen to. So I mostly feel like um, good writing and good books come from a lot of collaboration. And so I I like collaborating. I also – I go to a lot of readers beforehand too. So I have probably 12 to 15 beta readers. And I also almost always, I can't really think of a single time that I've not listened to what they've said because they're all readers. And I just feel like they're looking at it with fresh eyes. And I've written it myself and then also read, read it, you know, 47 million times. And so <laughs> yes. for them to come in and say, you know what, it didn't make sense when this happened, I'm like, you're probably right. So
0: that's really interesting. you've got like that's a fairly large number of beta readers. We've mm-hmm. talked before on the podcast with different writers about. Now we even have alpha readers, alpha readers being maybe the ones while you're in process say, keep going, that's great. So their only job is just to keep you going, not actually to critique on on things. And then beta readers are the ones that are going to give you that critique, knowing even if they are readers, everybody's coming from their own biases. So how do you manage that? So if you've got 15, do you wait for a certain number of changes? And again, this is probably similar to if your publisher comes back and says X, Y, Z needs to change, you're like, yeah, I get X, I get Y. Oh, I don't know about that. So there are only those few that you're like, I'm going to hold off a minute and see, does another one of the beta readers also see that, or how do you manage that? Because that's a yeah, lot that's, of voices. That could happen, but I would say
1: more likely. If I have fifteen readers, I would say maybe only three might pick up on a given thing, or it's sometimes even one, and that's definitely enough for me to change it. If I agree, okay. you know, they might say like, like I remember one reader said that they felt like one of the characters in the break. It was there was this moment when she sees this character that she sort of feels this, this instant feel these. A sort of like really like instinctual, instant feelings for. And my one friend was like, I need her to sort of like understand that it's ridiculous that she's sort of almost like not falling in love with someone at first sight, yes. but having this deep infatuation. And she was the only one that said that to me, but I completely agreed with it and made sure that my character had some perspective on the yeah. fact that she did not know, she didn't know this man. And, and just, little, just little things like that I would say is often what my readers are commenting on. I've yet to say, have anybody say anything like, oh my gosh, I don't think this point of view should be told. You should cut this entire <laughs> character. I don't think my I'm not and and that might be because my friends that are reading it. I don't know. Maybe they wouldn't make a sweeping suggestion that big. So I have yet to have anything that I've been like no way. I'm not, you know, I'm not doing that. Usually they usually it makes a whole lot of sense what they what they're saying. But I suppose if someone out there like who is listening right now if they got something where they just truly believed no way, I don't want to change that. That I think, you know, you are the master chef, right? Like you have to, yeah. you've got to be, the, you are the number one writer on the project. It's your project. So I, th- I do think it's okay to decide, you know what, I'm not going to do that.
0: Yeah. I think it's hard too, because the way that our brain works has happened recently in, in the membership. Somebody entered a contest and they had, there were three judges. Two of the judges came back with nice feedback, was the word that was used. And the third was like, that's not even... (laughs) The feedback was not relayed as far as I'm concerned, even in an appropriate manner. But leading into that, all this happened, it was like, where did those two go? We're only focused on the one who didn't get it. And I guess what I continue to relate... To people and it sounds like you've got an incredible team, not just a beta readers, but a great relationship with your agent as well as with your current editor that they do get you. And they know how to relate these things. So sure. you're not bumping up against those. And again, outliers. So in my experience as an agent, I can submit to multiple publishers who have very similar in terms of length of time in the industry and experience. And I look at their lists and one will say, oh my God, I love it. Especially this. And the other will say, yeah, it's okay. I I really don't like this. And the thing they really don't like is the thing the other one loves. Sure. So. Yeah it's not necessarily indicative, but it's getting really good at both hearing the external and then being able to filter it through. Sure. So like you said, you, if you came to that point, you'd know after waiting a day, which I think is always smart and then saying, okay, let's, let's try to be a little bit separate from it for a minute and just say, does it make sense? And if it, still does it doesn't, then you then don't do it then then yeah then it's just not that person because again one of the challenges in publishing always still is that it is subjective now what we're looking for is the greatest sort of overlap in audience and that's what a publisher would look for they want to sell books you want to sell books you want people to read your stories but saying that you're still everyone's going to have like I tell writers, don't go on Goodreads. Like Only go on Goodreads as a reader, never looking at your own books. Some people are good at it because they can compartmentalize. But my experience with most writers is you don't need that noise. You don't need those people who are just trying to say something for whatever, because you would know too. You s- if the books sell, I mean, I'm sure Colleen Hoover, by the way, has plenty of people who are hypercritical of her books sure. and she is laughing all the way to the bank right now. She, you know what I mean?
1: And I do think like, it's a good, it's a good thing to sort of, to like, I definitely, unless, I mean, sometimes there's even good criticism even in those reviews. I mean, for some reason, and I am very sensitive, so it's not that I'm not a sensitive person, but I don't know. I, the bad reviews, I just sort of feel like. If you're gonna sell books and that and you're lucky enough that you're publishing, I mean, I just feel like it's the luckiest job ever to be able to like write the books and, and have them out there and have readers, which is like the best feeling when readers read your book and then they, they take the time and they take the money to spend on it. So for me, when I get a bad review, I'm just sort of like, This is just this is part of my job. I mean, and you can't please everybody. You just can't. There's not even you couldn't make a drawing that everybody liked. So I feel <laughs> yes. like you can't expect to make a book that everybody likes. Some people are going to hate it. But if you're lucky enough to be at the stage, I think, where people are critically reviewing your work, whether that's on a forum like Goodreads or Amazon or in your writing class, you know, if you're brave enough that you've already shown your work, I, I just think you're already like so winning the game of, you know, you're yeah. you're ahead already. So just keep going. And sometimes, and sometimes I find if there's like I've even found, like for We Were Mothers, a novel, my first adult novel. There was this one criticism I kept hearing in reviews, and it was actually really helpful. They said there was too many characters introduced at once. So I had, I had opened that novel on a birthday party. It was like a toddler birth birthday party. And therefore, like it was sort of this big, like sort of I wanted to make this big dramatic scene where everything's kind of crazy and but I introduced all the characters at once. And so it was really good to hear that feedback that that, that didn't work for readers. They were like, Oh my God, this is too many characters at once. And I never did that again. So seventh I think seven <laughs> Sometimes the, the it's going be helpful if you hear the same thing over and over.
0: Yeah, well, I think that's true too. And balancing that thing that obviously you've built the skill over time. And that's why I was so impressed with the break as well. And i have to go back and read. Your backlist, which always excites me, That's very nice. but seeing that you have a few characters in the break, you've got it's a dual point of view, mm-hmm. and yet I never had this thing. I'm definitely want to raise my hand and say, if you have too many characters uh-huh. and you name them all, I'm going to lose it because I'm going to have to get a notebook out. Right, I'm going to sure. have to write them down. I'm going to have to figure out who said what. It's really yep. But I found the way you delivered. So whatever that feedback at that time clearly has gone well because you actually have quite a few characters in the break, but I was never, oh my God, wait a minute. Who said that? They were also very distinct, which is, and maybe your background again in acting and performing helps you with this because you would have a sense. We often talk about, and some people write it as a character Bible, right? They get it out of their head and onto paper. But yeah. I also think that there are some writers who are really good at subconsciously storing these details. Sometimes you'll you'll read a story and you're like, uh, it's not the names that are similar, but the characters feel very sure. much the same. And mm-hmm. here's the truth that may happen in real life. That's not okay for stories because your reader is going to get confused. And in a thriller, for sure, you can't because everybody has to have their own unique set of flaws, right? Or these things that you love about them, but then you doubt about them, that gongrel effect, right? Like, Mm -hmm. do I love them? Do I hate them? Also, Jodi Pico does that and uses that a lot. But I was really impressed that you had that number of characters. And not once did I say Who are we talking about? Which just goes to show you have differentiated inside. So it is coming out as you're writing it. It was really interesting too. You were saying moving from writing six hours a day to two hours a day, you like to write every day when you're writing is the two hours or again, when we're younger and don't have any kids (laughs) and even fur babies, whatever, it's a little bit easier. Okay, that's just a truth. Although some people say getting a little bit of definition and being busier can actually help them be more productive. But what I'm thinking is when you're sitting down and writing for those two hours, is it all on that project or do you give yourself quote unquote credit? And I'm not belittling it <laughs> credit for writing whatever you write during those two hours or is it only in your mind, like, it only counts if I'm doing X, Y, Z. And are the two hours concurrent? Like, can you only write, like, it's a block and that's all I got? Yeah, that's usually how I do it. I'll do it in a block, but I
1: definitely will write whatever that, you know, depending on if I'm really on deadline and I'm behind, then of <laughs> course I try to stick to that project that I'm supposed to be working on. But I do like to give myself, the, you know, the freedom to just sort of, if there's something else that I want to try and i'm like that with and as a reader too like i like to read sometimes i'll be reading something and i might love it but then like that night i might be really in the mood for a thriller instead of a historical yes. fiction book you know so I, I like to jump around a bit
0: i like that well i'm giving yourself permission so when when you're writing and i didn't really look at the the years what sort of scheduler are you on now? Like, are you ever editing while you're writing something new? How Actually, how do you not usually. Not usually. And we may pick up the pace a bit at,
1: as the books go. So right now they come out every two years, but we may go to every year and a half. And so then there might be some overlap, but actually, no, I'm generally writing, editing, and kind of doing all one project before ever trying to sell another. Okay. Like I have two books under contract now with Amazon little a, two more to come. One is called The Vacation Rental and that's coming out. And that's what I'm working on right now. And it's about a woman who rents out her vacation home and she sort of had her home to a renter. And she has, you know, some very unexpected consequences there. And <laughs> so that I will completely finish before starting the next, in terms of editing and proofreading and copy editing, like everything down to the last thing before starting the next one. Okay.
0: Well, and like, how do you balance that energy? I think naturally, because you come from that performance background. So look, I'm going to be on, that's probably a real benefit when you're going out and trying to promote. You're finished writing something. You've got that two-year lead time at the moment. So is it like the full thing? So you get to stay focused on this one project. Do you ever have that moment where you're like, oh, I wrote that a couple of years ago. I, I'm going to go out so I and always excited re-read talking before about it. But... I have to reread before I start to promote again. So like <laughs>
1: yes. I had to reread. I, re- I reread The Break, for example, before I went to, especially uh, doing a book club it's one thing like an author talk if i think okay we're going to talk more about process and different things and different books and this and that but if it's something like a like a book club i always reread the Like, I hadn't read The Break probably in six months. So, I made sure that I read it so that I was, you know, completely, completely sort of back in the phase of, oh, right, I remember exactly what happens in every single scene and with every single person and what they were thinking and all that.
0: Do you enjoy that when you read it back? Do you get that moment where you're like, oh, wow? Or do you, and do you still have that, oh my God, I can't believe I wrote that? that it's so separate from me or does everything still feel like just maybe hugging it still feels an pretty, old friend? It feels
1: pretty fresh. And I like, I'm like a pretty nostalgic person. So I like going mm-hmm. back into a manuscript and just sort of remembering what it felt like to write it then and what I was hoping to accomplish. And then did that work or, so I, I do like being back in them. They feel sort of like a portal into like another two years of my life that, you know, I remember really well, of course, especially with that one. It was so recent, but even my earlier books—I don't know—I I, I like sort of being like, "Oh right, I was thirty-one when I wrote this, or whatever." Even, you know, <laughs> it was a so long ago. Yeah, I do like going back, and I find that I can be less critical when I go back. I'm sort of like, "All right, it does not need," to, you know, my editing. I, I'm not thinking about like, "Oh God, this sentence is terrible." I mean, I'm sure there's <laughs> a million terrible sentences, but I usually have some grace when I read it again. I try to enjoy it.
0: Yeah. Well, it's interesting because again, you're able to put yourself in a different place, right? So rather than being on the stage, now you're in the audience and you're getting Mm -hmm. to just sort of accept it that way. I just think it's so interesting the different skills that every writer gets to take to their own writing process. And Mm -hmm. rather than saying, no, I can only do this. So what's a Danielle Steele thing I've mentioned before? It's something when she's writing, she writes 23 hours a day. And she has, I don't know, like however many children she had. And I just think that is great. And again, if that works for you, then great. But not holding yourself up to that and then seeing where things change. Like you talked about a certain stage of your life, you can write this many hours Sure, and then another. It's just changing. Mm-hmm. So, do you feel good now? And I know this is ever fun. anybody who has kids knows. As soon as you get used to like a routine, like think, yeah, we got it, and then you next did. minute, right. Right. <laughs> like right. now I'm going to do something new. Do you feel like you are? And it's such a tricky thing for women. And it's not fair, because I don't feel like men get this as much. But do you feel like your boundaries are good around that where you feel good in each of the parts? Do you are you still using your writing maybe as an escape from all these other things? What does that look like? Sort of, like I said, I hate balance, but I don't have a better word for it between Katie, as you are, and Katie as writer and Katie as mom and all of those different roles that you play.
1: I mean, it's funny because I definitely identify, because I'm home, I definitely identify as, you know, I feel like a very at, stay-at-home mom in a lot of ways because that's, I'm always at home. I, I'm like such a homebody. So physically, I literally feel like a stay-at-home mom because we've been <laughs> in a pandemic and also I like my being in my house because yeah. you know, I've been like a homebody I'm, since I was young. I'm with
0: you. <laughs>
1: I mean, so I guess I just feel like mostly I am doing all the mom things. And then when everybody's in, you know, nursery school, it's an escape to write. I mean, it definitely feels like an escape. It feels like, okay, let's do something imaginative. And it also gives you a great excuse to not, you know, do like organize your closet or like cook a, you know, cook a delicious lunch or something. (laughs) I don't know. I'm a terrible cook.
0: So I don't know what that I looks like. I was like a hot
1: lunch. What? <laughs> yeah. I know I don't even know. I mean, what do people cook? Amazing things that I'm not cooking. So yeah, I would just say, you know, i sort of try to take it as it comes a little. And I was saying that somebody asked me, well, how do you balance it and how do you prioritize? And I guess like every other mom out there or every other parent, you're like doing the thing that has to get done at that moment. You know, Mm. like you know that tomorrow this special thing is happening at school, and you have to make sure that like your child's all ready for that. And then you have to do this at one p.m. And then you have to go to the doctor. And then you also have to like hopefully get your manuscript in. And I think you're everybody's just kind of trying to do the best they can. I mean, I'm I am not a perfect example of um, balance by any means, but I just try to meet deadlines more out of respect for my editor and my agent. And
0: (laughs) that works for you. I just try to do my best. Yeah. Have you ever taken that? Because I know Zibby talks about this too. I've used this for years, Gretchen Rubin's Four Tendencies quiz. Have you heard of that one?
1: I don't think I've I've definitely heard of it. And it's ringing a bell, like I maybe took it at some point, but I can't remember.
0: It's always interesting. And again, to the point early on, before we started really recording, we talked a little bit about astrology, (laughs) which is separate from this. I'm a big believer in a lot of personality type indicators too in so much as if they can give you a pathway to understanding yourself and then giving yourself that grace like you were talking about even in just reading your your own work again and understanding when we talk about process how much do you sit down if you know what your tendency is or if you know your I don't know your Myers-Briggs or I even look at human design sometimes so that you're taking the path of least resistance for you. So it's a more enjoyable bloody mm-hmm. process, right? So the goal being when mm-hmm. you hit the pillow at night, you go, ah, oh, that was a lot, but like I mostly did what I wanted to. I mostly got done what I wanted to get done rather than seeking that perfection, more relaxing in to yeah. just who you are, right? Mm-hmm. So you, I always think- sure. You were saying too early on, and maybe we'll even close out, we'll get a a final word from you on this. But I love that you brought up one of my favorite Robert Frost quotes without saying that, which is uh, tears in the writer, tears in the reader, laughter in the writer, laughter in the reader. If you're feeling the suspense, then hopefully that will translate to the reader. And I absolutely, based at least on the break (laughs) so far, I think you absolutely do that. Is there anything, if you were going to talk to somebody who, whether they were going to get started ghostwriting or whatever, they've still got this dream. They've been giving it a go for a while. They're not sure if they're doing it right, using air quotes or not. But what would you say to writers who are like, that's even like a secret dream? I'm just starting. How to get and mm-hmm. and persevere to keep going. How? What would you say to them? So I think if you really, when you truly love it,
1: and I think most writers really, truly love it, like they feel the drive to write. You, I think when you can do it for that reason, first and foremost, I think that also sort of comes out in your writing, right? Like the total... Yeah. Not that it has to be total joy all the time because it's certainly not. It's definitely a job. But I think when you practice it every day and you really look at it like a craft, like if you were going to learn to play piano and you think about like all the hours that you would put into it before you expected that you would go maybe and like play a restaurant and then play a concert. And to give yourself grace on like this might take a little time, but I'm, you know, just like remind yourself like, okay, I'm determined to practice this and to get it right. And there are just so many talented writers out there. I think when they keep going, that that's often the difference between a published writer and a non-published writer is just that a published writer has kept going and sort of said like, but I'm a writer and I know I can tell a good story. And I'm going to keep honing that craft the same way I would anything else. Like if I started painting it um, right now, I would expect it would be like a while before I had a show. And so I think to believe in yourself enough that like it's worthwhile that you're a creator and it's worthwhile to write a story and stories connect people. And so like we need your story. So just to keep, to really, to keep going. I mean, I like if I, I keep feeling like if I had stopped, I never would have known that something was going to eventually sell, even if it wasn't for years. So I think to just keep going because it's important to tell stories and it's important to be a person who, if you're a creative person and you need to work creatively, like you know yourself. So you know if it's just like something that your soul needs. So to keep going with that in mind that like it will take some time, but like you'll get there. And you know, I I love, I love a good class. But I also think if you can't afford a class or if it's not in your future to take one just now, some friends that you trust reading manuscripts, sort of like we've talked about, and you know, I think watching really good television and yes, is a really good way to like watch the art of story, the idea of the beginning and a middle and an end to everything. And I would just say like just give your permission, you give yourself permission to write, and even if you're not published yet, to sort of remind yourself that like your work is still really important, and you know publishing is great for so many things. And of course, being paid for your work is really important, but your work is important, even if it, even if you're not paid quite yet.
0: Yeah. Oh, I love that. Thank you so much, Katie, for taking time today and sharing. Like I said, everyone, please go out and read the break, especially if you like suspense and we've had another suspense author on, but just even if you're using it as a way to break down like She's giving you a sneak peek into her process too, <laughs> into how she plots it, even if she's doing it mostly in her mind. It's literally in the book. And so super exciting, but just a really good read. You had me on the edge of my seat and I really appreciate that. It's really it's hard to do, as you said. It can be hard to do these days because we're a little bit uh, more ready for whatever's coming, right? We're trying to look for the outliers and I didn't Guess it, or if I guessed it, then I doubted it. And it wasn't until the very end, there was something at the very end that I absolutely wasn't expecting. That's how there were that many surprises. I mean, actually, another one and another one and another one. And that's very rare to find in a book where you're like, oh, that's going to be the bomb that's dropped. Nope, here comes another one. (laughs) Here comes another one. And yet, it actually ends. So just so everyone knows it ends on a hopeful note, Mm -hmm. right? It ends feeling like there's some good. So maybe another beautiful thing to come out of COVID. So yeah, not loving COVID, not loving everything being shut down, but definitely appreciative of all of the beautiful stories that have come out of it. So thank you so much for coming on today. So much for having me. Thank you everybody for listening. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Writers Talking. Join us next time for more Writers in Conversation as we delve into the writers' process, their passions, and a little bit about their books. Don't forget to subscribe on your fave podcast player and follow us on Instagram at writers underscore talking underscore podcast.